0: Welcome to the fourth episode in our series on faithful leadership. We're bringing you in-depth conversations to help you ponder what it means to be a faithful and wise leader. In today's episode, Wake Forest professor, author, and director of the Program for Leadership and Character, Michael Lamb, helps us consider key questions of leadership in the context of moral confusion, chaos, and conflict. I think if we do care
1: about our social fabric, if we care about our communal flourishing, we need the virtues that help us build meaningful relationships. We need empathy and we need humility to recognize our limits and we need courage and justice and we need other virtues. And I think in that context, I think what's really important is to recognize that um, character matters and it matters for our flourishing, but also it can
0: actually lead to more effective results. This is an edited version of our online conversation from February of this year. You can find the full video of that conversation on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder.
2: Our topic today is one that has consumed the thoughts of parents and philosophers, educators and politicians throughout history, but is increasingly difficult to discuss in public without conflict and controversy. In addition, many of the institutions that once formed character have been stressed or strained. The habits and self-reflection that help anchor us seem ever harder to maintain amidst the distraction and speed of daily life, and the friendships that also cultivate our character seem harder to cultivate and prioritize themselves with our increasing mobility, isolation, and polarization. Even the very vocabulary often used to describe character, virtue, and moral leadership has demonstrably declined crowded out by the language of advancement, gain, and domination. At the same time, we're experiencing increasing conflict in the public square over what is right and confusion over what's true, both of which have deep moral and virtue dimensions. Our discussion of character, virtue, and moral leadership may have waned, but our need for it only grows. So it is a particular pleasure to get to introduce our guest today, who has dedicated much of his life and his scholarship to the study and cultivation of character, virtue, and leadership, Dr. Michael Lamb. Dr. Lamb is the Kirby Foundation Chair of Leadership and Character, a professor of politics, ethics, and interdisciplinary humanities, and the Executive Director of the Program for Leadership and Character at Wake Forest University, as well as a research fellow at the Oxford Character Project. I should note by way of congratulations to Michael that the Program for Leadership and Character at Wake that he leads recently was awarded a $30 million grant from the Lilly Foundation to help support research and programs to enable other colleges as well to develop and strengthen their own character education initiatives. So congratulations, Michael. Uh, A former Rhodes Scholar, Michael's scholarship focuses largely on the ethics of citizenship and the role of virtues in public life. And he is the author of the new release and the co-editor of Cultivating Virtue in the University and Everyday Ethics. Michael, welcome. It's great to have you here.
1: Great. Thanks, so Mr. Tri- I'm delighted to be here today, back at the Trinity Forum.
2: It's always good to just start by defining our terms and what we're talking about. We're we're talking about character, virtue, and leadership, all of which are related but distinct. Right. So why don't we start off just by you kind of telling us? how you think about these three concepts, where they differ, and how they relate.
1: Yeah, so, you know, leadership is often discussed in our common culture. There are many theories and models of what leadership is, from servant leadership to relational leadership and transformational leadership. We take a very broad approach to leadership in our program at Wake Forest, just as the practice of inspiring, empowering, and guiding others toward a common goal or purpose. So it's a very inclusive concept of what leadership is, to allow people to have Flexibility and understanding how to apply it in different professional or academic disciplines. Um, so I see good leadership as purposeful. It's ordered toward a, a shared or common purpose. Leadership is relational. It's always in relationship with other people that you become leaders. You can't be a leader without having followers or teammates to lead. It's contextual. It depends on different contexts and backgrounds to respond well to those. It's also collaborative and inclusive. So we imagine leadership as being about empowering others and including diverse voices in that process. And then finally, it's character-driven. So we need virtues of character like humility or justice or courage to lead well in very complex circumstances. And so so what is character in that context then? So character, as I understand it, is just a set of dispositions and habits that define how we think, feel, and act as part of our moral identity. And so good habits of character are virtues that help us think, feel and act in the right ways for the right reasons and in the right context, whereas bad habits of character would be vices that might force us to act in the wrong way or in the wrong context. And so in many ways, I think character and virtue really aim toward human flourishing. And so those traits that help us flourish as individuals and as communities. So I I define it kind of as as a kind of approach toward flourishing that helps us really be the best we can be as human beings.
2: You know, we're at a time where it seems like most universities, much of higher education, has not only abandoned the idea that cultivating character is part of its mission, but quite forcefully rejected that. And you've had some pushback, you know, the books from Tony Cronman and Harry Lewis. You know, but for the most part, it seems like this is something that the high universities don't take on. And, and yet, uh, this has been your scholarly focus, and you actually teach a course too, convincing character for, for freshmen. Right. So it, it seems clear that you do believe that this is a proper function of the university. And, and I'm curious why you think that universities should take on this role as well as how students respond to it.
1: Yeah, well, we've been very encouraged at Wake Forest, Cherie. I think what we've seen is that students do hunger for these kinds of questions to be asked as part of their college education. and But often don't know they hunger for it until they taste it. And so for us them the taste of that really helps them think about who they wanna be in the world and how they wanna live. And I think historically, character was very much a part of most liberal arts colleges in the US. Often the president would teach a course on character to graduating seniors as a capstone course. So I think, and for good reason, there were concerns about character in the 1950s and 60s as we became more diverse as a country, as research became more of a priority in the university context and disciplines became more specialized. And so character kind of fell out for many many universities. But I think there's a real interest now and we've experienced it at Wake Forest and beyond. Of faculty who really want to understand how to teach character and to do it well. And I was very encouraged to read a recent study from the Higher Education Research Institute at UCLA that in this study, last faculty survey of over, I think 20,000 faculty, I think, maybe more, I don't remember the exact numbers, 85% identified shaping students' character as important to their role. And so that's very encouraging that faculty really believe it's important, but often aren't trained to know how to do it, often don't have the resources or background to do it well. And so we're really trying to help equip faculty to do this work in ways that can be effective and also align with their own purposes and their own disciplines. And so we've had workshops at Wake Forest where we've had over 75 faculty to take our workshops to develop new courses or modules on leadership and character and been very encouraged by the, the response from faculty who really want to do this work and just want guidance and support in doing it well. And so I've really been encouraged by that recent trends to, to make character more important in higher education. Mm-hmm.
2: It seems like it's not just been at the university where, at least in the past, there's been kind of a, a jettisoning of the role of cultivation of character, but even, you know, a society writ large, there's been more of a contesting as to whether character is important to leadership. One of the findings that was most surprising, even demoralizing to me, is to find like how much attitudes have changed within the church. You know, there has been polling that found that just, you know, 10 years ago, evangelicals among all different religious groups were the most likely to affirm the importance of character to to excellent leadership. You know, and more recently, it's, you know, less than a third. It's, it, Tanked essentially, where it's it's no higher than the, the public at, at large, and to think that you know really only a third or so of the populace thinks that personal character is vital to good leadership is pretty remarkable. So I would ask, what would you say to those, particularly within the church, who mm-hmm. believe that that character doesn't matter to effective leadership?
1: Yeah, I think. I would ask them to look around and see where it has been missing and see what the results of that have been and they have not been so good in certain contexts. I think we can see over the last few years in different sectors from politics to public health and other places where a lack of character based leadership has created some real distrust among citizens and leaders. It's generated sort of some real harm to to others. And it's really created this social fabric where we're really frayed right now. And so I think if we do care about our social fabric if we care about our communal flourishing, we need the virtues that help us build meaningful relationships. We need empathy and we need humility to recognize our limits and we need courage and justice and we need other virtues. And I think in that context, I think what's really important is to recognize that, um, Character matters, and it matters for our flourishing, but also it can actually lead to more effective results. Research shows, for example, that across different professions, those leaders with higher character actually get better results than those without them. So, for example, Fred Keel has a great book called Return on Character, which surveys different companies and finds that those companies that really value character in its leadership and corporate culture actually do better on the bottom line than those that don't. So I think there are ways in which this evidence across different fields now from from politics to to medicine shows that if you want really effective professionals, they need to have the kind of virtues that make them very good at their jobs. So I think there are ways to really integrate this idea that character is not only good for its own sake, but also it can be effective. And we often ignore the way that it can be effective for our leaders. So I think that's one way I'd respond to those skeptics who might worry about character not mattering. I think it does matter. I think we've seen evidence- of it mattering. You know, Richard Reeves said that character like oxygen is most noticeable when it's missing. And I think we've noticed character missing in certain contexts. And I think and at that point, I think many people now are more interested in character, including the university, because they've seen it's missing in our public life.
2: Yeah, you know, that's fascinating. I'd sort of like to, well, kind of dig into that a little bit in that there's not only kind of a modern sense, but also a Machiavellian challenge to that kind right. of idea. You know, you know, Machiavelli thought that you know leaders or you know great men, as he called them, you know, essentially cannot be good men. That uh, that virtue will will limit their ability to lead, and that it's better to have the appearance of virtue, you know, rather than the thing itself with all of its constraints and obligations that go with it. You know, which which limit one's action. You know, and you hear kind of modern day Machiavellis all the time talk about how, you know, they don't want a preacher. They want someone who will, you know, who will fight, who will crush opposition and enemies in order to, you know, to do the right thing. So tell me a little bit more about how, you know, two people who think that essentially virtue does not work, you know, it, it does not make a leader effective. How can virtue work?
1: Well, I think virtue does work and it can work, but I think we have to figure out what it works for and for whom. I think often these accounts of leadership assume things about leadership or virtue or or success that may not be what we want to affirm. And so often they assume success is about power or profit or prestige in some way, status. And I think in that context, that kind of built into the kind of the question. They often assume it's also short-term success not long-term success. But if we actually reimagine success in a different way that it's not just short-term but long-term and that while power and certain goods might matter to us, you know it's it's mattering for for the larger community that's more important. So if it's not just the leader's good but the good of the community that really matters here, then I think that can help re set our view of what what leadership ought to aim for and what virtue ought to work for. So I think it's really having us question, what is our aim? What is our purpose? And can we actually sort of maybe resist success as the aim and actually put flourishing there instead? And how would flourishing offer a different purpose, a different aim for our life and our leadership that might give us different examples of what what might work in, in leadership? So that's one kind of thought I have about it. The other one I would have is this, like, how do we think about what you know, Machiavelli was all about power and glory in certain ways. And what do we glorify today? What do we what do we count as what gives us glory? And St. Augustine had lots of thoughts about this. I do a lot of work on St. Augustine and his, his analysis of ancient Rome, for example, was Rome was a place that really valued glory, that lusted for the glory and honor. And to acquire glory and honor, they actually would then use their power to dominate other people to get more glory. They could show they were stronger than someone else then they would actually be have more glory. And so Augustine's really challenging this pursuit of glory as the primary aim of leadership and of human life and trying to reorient it toward, for him, the glory of God. So for those in the church, for example, how can think about sort of love of God or glory of God chasten our own pursuits of glory for our own selfish purposes? That's kind of a, a very Augustinian idea to order our loves in the right ways to enable us to pursue the right kinds of goods for the right reasons.
2: Yeah. You know, I guess this is also probably an Augustinian question, which is, you know, all about the ordering of the loves. You know, I'll boil it down to why do we love jerks? And just Mm. to unpack that a little bit, you know, most people, if you ask them, would very much affirm much of what you just or all of what you just said. You know, we are, we want to affirm compassion and leaders who point us towards flourishing rather than their personal glorification and domination. We like humility, but yet often, when you look at the, whether business leaders or politicians that people actually valorize, you know, the Steve Jobs of the world, the Adam Nomans from WeWork, you know, who we vote for, you know, it seems that we often really attract to or sort of vicariously glory in the domineering, the self-promoting and the narcissistic. So as a scholar, of leadership and character, as well as of Augustine, who talked about the ordering of our loves. What makes us gravitate towards virtue-challenged leaders? And what advice would you give in helping citizens essentially discern Mm -hmm. wise leaders and virtuous leaders from the the self-impressed
1: yeah, it's a great question, Cherie. And, and it's a really interesting sort of problem to analyze. And I think, you know, we might we might love jerks in public life, but not, probably not in our personal life. We probably don't have friends who are jerks, right? And so, why, but why is that? Why, why is it that we actually value friends who actually show compassion or humility or kindness to us, but want our leaders to show these other virtues? I think it's, it's probably complex cultural reasons for that. I think partly it's a, we live in a celebrity culture right now, where celebrity becomes the the status symbol. And it's your number of followers on Instagram or Twitter. It's your ways you actually engage in more popular sort of messaging that builds your followers. I think this celebrity culture, I think, has really cultivated a sense of intrigue and drama being what draws people into a human story. And certainly those people often have and offer intrigue and drama in ways that are often not very helpful for our our common good. So I I think there are ways in which we need to kind of be active as citizens and actually claiming more because we deserve more, but we have to shape citizens to want more and want things differently. So where does education come in? It's shaping not just our own character, but our desires for our leaders. How can our own formation help us prioritize certain values that might not be prioritized in our current culture and resist those like celebrity culture or achievement culture that might create toxic leaders that are quite harmful to our To our common good. So I do think it's it's a a mix and a cocktail of, of social media, of increasing access to different platforms and the way that leaders themselves construct these narratives, their own realities, to then sort of create alternative visions that that people find quite seductive often. And so how do we also recognize that? Of course, there are larger social trends too we're seeing about around loneliness and isolation now as well, and the ways in which when you're isolated and seeking belonging, you want to find people you can kind of latch onto to, to identify with and find belonging in. So I think there are ways in which our own social culture and its isolation might also be reinforcing some of these trends. But I do think if you think about those who are awarded not just for, you know, an award at, at the Oscars, the Grammys, but for an award for their, their virtue of leadership, you know, those who we celebrate on national holidays. We do celebrate these moral exemplars in our national life in ways that are quite powerful. And so how can we think about those people as exemplars and the kind of leaders who might set a standard for us for evaluating other leaders in our current culture?
2: Oh, that's fascinating. You know, I, I mentioned at the, in the introduction that the the language of virtue has sort of fallen into disuse. And one of the, I thought, fascinating and really elegant sort of demonstrations of that in one of his books, David Brooks, I think it was the The road to character talked, it you know, was actually able to quantify that. I guess Google in words to sort of track mm-hmm. language usage over time, you know, and found that the, the language of virtue has, has really tanked, largely driven out by the language of individualism, of mm. commerce, and also, and more recently, the language of kind of domination. And of course, words shape our thoughts, and they shape our assumptions and our imagination. And you are in the role of trying to cultivate character at a time when the very words are, are, are have kind of fallen into um, mm. to disuse. How do you do that when the language itself is increasingly neglected?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. When I think about it a lot, you know, when when concepts tend to fall out of favor, there are usually two ways to to reform them. You can either give up the concept and get another concept that might work right and replace it in some way. Or you can try to resignify the concept you're trying to expand and give it a new meaning. And I think we're trying to do, do a little bit of both of those things. We're trying to show the ways in which characters, not maybe what people often think it is. It's not, people often have very diverse views of what character is, but when you think about particular virtues of character, like humility or honesty or courage or justice or empathy, people always agree on those and maybe even use those terms to describe their friends or their family members in very sort of real and concrete ways. So how do we shift it from being just about character in the abstract, Mm -hmm. being about particular virtues of character? that really matter for us? And I think when you focus on virtues of character, people actually really can find agreement there in ways they might not with this abstract idea of what character character might mean. And we also try to personalize it to people's own friendships because we think about our friends or our partners or our family, we actually do value character a lot. And when friends betray us or they treat us with cruelty or they are dishonest to us, we feel that pain in our own life. And so I think if we can sort of recognize, if we care about good relationships, then character is part of that work and we need to have character. And so we're also trying to re-signify leadership as well. I think leadership has been seen as this, traditionally this, this hierarchical, positional, source of power and authority. Uh, And often leaders are. They're the CEOs or the movement leaders or the politicians who are out front in some way. But we also imagine leadership in a much broader, more expansive way to include those who have some influence on other people. And that can be all of us in different contexts. We're all leaders and followers in different contexts. And so how can we equip people to also take up leadership where it's not just waiting on the leader up front to do all the work or to make the decisions, but actually empowering us be part of that process. So if if we can sort of re-signify character and leadership in these ways, I think we can give people a much more expansive and also palatable way to understand their relevance and value for our contemporary life.
2: So speaking of re-signifying, you actually developed what you called seven strategies. I actually thought the word strategy was sort of an interesting choice of word rather than like practice or liturgy or what have you, but seven strategies for character cultivation. Can you run through those real quickly and kind of tell us how you approach the cultivation of character?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. We, we did some research when I was at Oxford now at Wake Forest on which, what does research in philosophy and education and psychology tell us about how to develop character? And we did a lot of research and reading around these different fields and found that there were seven strategies that came up over and over again as ways to do this effectively. And they're pretty commonsensical. So we, we all do this already, but often don't think about it related to character in our life. And so I think hearing these might seem obvious, but also if you can sort of claim them, I think people can actually feel equipped to do this work in their own life in very interesting ways. So the first one is habituation through practice. Mm-hmm. We learn virtue like we learn skills by doing it over and over again until we come to habituate that virtue, or that that trait. Second is reflection on experience. We learn not just by reading books about virtue and character or listening to podcasts or, or moderated sessions, but also by, by doing it, by trying to be the kind of people we want to be think about what we did right, what we did wrong, and then changing based on that reflection. Third, we also learn from the experience of other people in our lives. So exemplars or role models who might embody good character and show us what it means to be humble or grateful or courageous. And they're often people who can give us advice about how to live or might help expand our imagination for our vocation or our own virtue in ways that challenge us to be better. And what research shows is that it's not just these heroes like, Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi that are most empowerful. It's actually those people in our lives who are just a little bit ahead of us or maybe a bit more advanced to us who are relevant and attainable, who are most impactful in shaping our character. So, Looking for exemplars is really important for that. Fourth, it's having conversations about virtue and understanding how to increase our virtue literacy, which we're doing today, Sheree, in this conversation. Fifth, it's, it's being aware of our biases and how situational pressures and biases might actually sort of thwart or undermine our own capacity to make good decisions and to act virtuously in certain contexts. So if we can be aware of those, we can sort of correct them and then choose situations where we avoid those temptations or biases as we go forward. Six moral reminders. Those things remind us of who we are and what we care about. So on a college campus, that could be an honor code, for example, where when you sign the honor code on each test, you're reminded that you, you pledge to be someone of honor on that assignment. That reminds us of our commitment in ways that make it harder for us to justify cheating or being dishonest. In that context. And then finally, friendships of accountability and support. We don't develop character in isolation. We develop it in community. And our friends, people who give us support in times of need, counsel in times of confusion, and correction perhaps in times of, of real struggle can help us be our best selves in ways that call us to something greater than what we might see ourselves. So Aristotle said that friends are like mirrors to us that help us see ourselves more clearly. I think the best friends of ours can be mirrors to us to help us see our character more clearly and how we want to improve going forward. So I think friendship really is, is, is crucial to this work in a very meaningful way. and has been at Wake Forest. We found that students in our program say that friendships are the most important parts of their own development over four years.
2: You know, I'd love to have the time to kind of individually draw down into it, drill down into each of those practices. We don't, we don't have that time, but let me just ask about the last one about, about friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think that probably resonates intuitively with everybody listening that we, we don't, we, we learn who we are. We grow into who we are with others, not, not in isolation. But, you know, we also see all of these studies and stats about how friendship is in decline, that fewer mm-hmm. people say that they have close friends, you know, or any number of close friends. Mm-hmm. We're getting increasingly isolated, you know, all alone together, essentially. And so wanted to hear your thoughts about the practices that lead to that strategy, you know, for young people or, or old people for that matter, mm-hmm. who know, yes, I I I need those kind of friendships, the deep ones that the call forth the, the bitter angels of my nature that, that point me towards what is good and true. How does one start? How does one go about that?
1: Well, I think being able to identify which friendships are most important is crucial. You know, Aristotle thought there are three kinds of friendship, friendship based on pleasure. You enjoy doing things together with your friend, friendship based on utility. They're useful to you in some way, I think business partners or colleagues, and then friendship based on virtue, where you really try to, you know, do the good of the friend for their own sake, not for yours, and offer the kind of counsel, correction, support that real requires at times to be a good friend. I think in our current culture, we don't talk about the different kinds of friendship very much. And we often say to being friends on Facebook is being a kind of friend, right? But that's really a friend of not really of maybe utility, maybe a pleasure if you enjoy seeing our posts in some way. But it's not a chance often to go deep in the ways that friends of virtue do. And so I think one, one way to sort of re- claim friendship is to kind of re-signify what it might mean in our culture and why it might be good to have it. And what we found at Wake Forest with our students, we've been very encouraging and very inspiring is seeing students who are really engaging across difference face-to-face with structured kind of prompts, either in courses or in our programming, they really do the hard work of friendship and they learn how to be friends. And I've been really encouraged by when you give people the chance to do this and show them a a vision for it, they're they're really hungry for it. And so if we can figure out ways to create spaces where people can learn to be friends face to face in ways that can allow empathy and humility and care to emerge organically i think that's the real key to this work is really providing those spaces and our culture doesn't give many spaces for that right now it's it's very isolating it's it's all online or in very tailored groups so where can we create common spaces in our culture where people who who want, want friendship come together to explore things that matter most to them. I think Trendy Forum is doing that in its own way by fostering these conversations where people come together around important topics. And then how do you then foster friendships out of those common values and interests? I think that's a big question for our culture and one we ne- need to really imagine creatively as we go forward.
2: I'd be interested in your thoughts for, for parents who are, say, just starting out and, and have this daunting responsibility, an exciting responsibility af- ahead of them of trying to cultivate character and virtue in, you know, in their children, what what counsel or advice would you give encouragement along the way?
1: Well, I guess what I would say is that one piece of counsel is that the kids are watching. In fact, research shows that one of the most effective ways to, to learn characters about watching others who embody it. So in many ways, setting a good example is the most important part of that work because even in our minds we have mirror neurons in our minds which imitate the behaviors of those around us those we love or admire and kids admire and love their parents and so they're even without realizing it always imitating ways they behave and respond and so if that's true as research suggests it is then setting the kind of example you want your kids to uh emulate i think is most important advice i have is as being an exemplar of character which means you got to figure out what you care about and what you what you value and how you live that in very complex times. I'm reading now Parker Palmer's book, The Courage to Teach, which is a beautiful book about those who, who yearn to be really transformational teachers have to do the work themselves because their own example is really the most powerful sort of effect, has the most powerful effect on students. And so we have to do the work ourselves to do that, to do that kind of work as an example. So how can we really invest in character as a part of our own life? And then also be an example of someone who values it to our children and to others around us as well.
2: This has been both enjoyable and really fascinating. Michael, I want to give you the last word.
1: Well, thank you so much, Cherie. I'll give Augustine the last word from a passage of one of his sermons I love, and I think it's relevant for our time. He says there, bad times, hard times, that's what people keep saying, but let us live well and times shall be good. We are the times, such as we are, such are the times. I think Augustine here is reminding us that we're not passive victims of our times, but active leaders and citizens who can shape them by how we live. And the more we actually embody leadership and character in our own life, in our communities, the more we can have our times be good. So I think it's a very profound call for hope, for action, and I think most importantly, for character. So I'll leave Augustine with those last words.
2: That's great. Thank you, Michael.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on faithful leadership. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity forum conversations to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review, visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity forum readings and videos of past events.